we think that women go together, pain and women go together like bread and butter. And we just shouldn't and, and don't need to. But the shame stops us from talking. Hello and welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear to find out what it can teach us about ourselves and the world around us. We'll discover how fear limits them, how it motivates them and how they find the courage to face it head on. But before we begin, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor, Codex Beauty Labs. I don't know about you, but a lot of the time when I'm putting products on my skin, I don't really know how clean the ingredients actually are. Often beauty companies make these bold promises about their ingredients, only to be short on reality. But Codex Beauty Labs, on the other hand, represents what is good in the beauty industry today. What I love about Codex is their transparency and commitment to science. Their pioneering products are composed of clean and meticulously sourced ingredients and have clinically proven skincare benefits. Even more reassuring is that their wonderful founder is an award-winning PhD scientist herself. Simply put, Codex exceeds market expectations in sustainability and cleanliness. Each day, they work towards their mission to blend plant biology and biotech innovation and to create true, long-lasting plant-based biotech beauty. I'm really happy I found these wonderful products and I highly recommend them. They smell absolutely delicious and make your skin feel silky soft. You can find Codex at codexbeauty.com. My guest today is Emma Barnett, award-winning journalist, presenter of BBC's Newsnight, and most importantly to me, host of Women's Hour. Emma's an inspiration, and I recently found myself captivated by her empowering new book, Period, It's About Bloody Time. In this episode, we find out how Emma toughed it through period pains so severe it caused her to black out. She discusses her fears surrounding her experiences with IVF, and she also tells a story about when she attacked a man who was trying to mug her friend, a story she has never told publicly. But first, we started by reflecting on how we first met. I remember interviewing you on Woman's Hour, having come to see you in this amazing play about Orwell's life. And here we are together again. Yes, in a very hot, sweaty, tiny (laughs) theatre. And actually, when I came on, I remember um, normally if uh, a journalist asked me about my ex, uh, my relationship with Prince Harry, I feel this heat inside my chest when I'm wanting to promote my work. And you did ask me, but for whatever reason, I think it might be your warmth, Emma. I didn't have that hot burning sensation in my chest. And um, and I think it's because it felt like you were, you were, sounds strange, but sort of on my side in a way. Well, I think I remember, I remember that as well, because, you know, asking women about famous men is really tricky territory. But of course, I don't know, I've interviewed Hillary Clinton, and I had to ask her about Bill, you know, um, these things happen where we live interconnected lives, as long as you don't define the woman by something that she does not wish to be defined by, I think, Actually, I think that's what I asked you about, is that you were forever being defined in that way and how probably unfair that felt. So I think if you come at it in a way that's fair, then hopefully the person you're talking to can can get on board with it. But it is a, it's a calculation, always those sorts of things. 
But I, I'm a great fan of showing my workings, you know, and, and saying why I'm saying something. And that hopefully makes sense. I think if you can justify it, and I really think carefully before asking questions, if you can justify it, then it's, it's always okay. Now, Emma, you are often described as fearless in the press. And I'm someone who doesn't believe that anyone can really be fearless unless you're a sociopath, which I definitely know that you are not a sociopath. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to know, what are those moments in your career when the fear does creep in? I think when you're doing something new, but I also think because the majority of my broadcasting is live, fear is just an active ingredient. Uh, it's it keeps you on your on your game. I, I think most recently, the most frightened I've sort of felt, or the fear that really kind of crept in in this very weird way, was before hosting Question Time for the first time at the last election, because it was combining lots of things I'd never done before, and also it was a one-off. I was doing the um, the younger person one, the eighteen to thirty mm. audience. Bit like a, one of those holidays to a hot place, but with with probably way less bands. And um, I just didn't know anyone really on the team. I didn't know the place we were or the space we were in. And it's I suppose it's like doing improv maybe in your world. You kind of you plan, but you don't really know what's going to happen. And you've got seven politicians from the political parties, and I've had to read all of their manifestos, and I've had to think about what the questions might come in from our audience without knowing all of them. We knew some of them in advance, but then you know it sort of kicks off and I just had to be the kind of the ringleader you know the the conductor of all of this and you never know what's going to happen on a live event anyway but I think when you do something new it's always good but then Cressida thinking about fear coming to you why do I keep doing these things that are fearful and stressful and I obviously also get off on fear Yes. And you also uh, sent me an email earlier on and you said, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention that fear also can be a great motivator, which I totally agree with. Yeah, I think, yes. You you know, you say I'm not a sociopath, but there must be something slightly wrong with people (laughs) like you and me to do what we do, you know, um, because something can go wrong. And and that's but then equally, I do say to producers and colleagues, say everything's going wrong, you know quite recently quite recently quite regularly uh you'll be coming up to 10 o'clock so I used to be on five live that's where I used to do a a three-hour show before joining women's hour for the last five years and you know there's a poster now on my wall that the team made for me when I left saying three minutes to air have we got anyone are they there (laughs) oh the line's gone down okay Phil you know and that and then you sort of do the show you you pumped up with the adrenaline you finish and the last line of the poster says we're amazing Right. You know, and yeah. you sort of just you might not have been. I, I, t- I definitely add that. But you I always say it's not brain surgery. What, what I do, it's really not that important. Let's not get it out of perspective. It's it's conversation on steroids. And, you know, at times there are very emotional conversations, very powerful conversations, very important conversations, taboos being busted, holding people to account. All those things go on in the, the types of shows that I do, the types of programs. But at the end of the day, no one's going to die if I get it wrong um, in, in the way that other jobs have. So I like to keep my fear in perspective because I think while I do do things that most people would feel really sick at, I also know that I don't do lots of things that are outside of my comfort zone, such as ice skating or, I don't know, skiing. I'm terrible at skiing. Like lots of physical things I'm not very good at. So I wouldn't put myself in that arena to fail. I think you you in life quite cleverly avoid things that are too much for you. 
And also, I think that we're both in industries where we sort of sign ourselves up for criticism in a way. I mean, that's just part of the job sometimes. And I'm someone who I do find criticism quite hard when it's in the press or, um, you know, being trolled. And I was wondering, when you receive criticism, and I don't know if you have been trolled, but in the press and whatever, how do you respond to that? I have, I've stepped back and I've disengaged more, more and more, because you have to know what the people who matter think and the people who don't matter, what they think matters less because they don't know necessarily you or they don't know the context or they don't want to know those things. You know what I mean? They willfully ignore facts or context. So I think also I was looking around the life of of the Duke, of what Prince Philip, some of his quotes, and there's some really interesting ones, of course, of various things he, he was famous for saying. But I think there was a lovely quote. He said, it's a big mistake to think about yourself. If you think it's all about you, you'll never be happy. So I also think, if in doubt, read something else, read a book. Don't think about everything through the prism of yourself. I think it's that thing where sometimes if you're criticised and you take it very personally, it's that feeling of, oh, I'll just quit. You know, I'm obviously useless at this and I'm just not going to do it. People are delicate, you know, I think there's also been some, they're quite rare, but stories of people figuring out who certain, you know, there's been those documentaries, Meet Your Troll or, or whatever. I invited one of them for dinner, actually, and he never got back to me. It's funny that. Um, <laughs> but when you do meet them, they've often got some real problems themselves. And so they don't realise sometimes how hurtful what they're saying can be, or they might have a reason for saying it, you know, but you just can't go, to, you, you can't go too down that rabbit hole, can you? You really can't. Yeah. And you don't know where, who they are or what, you know, as you say, what problems they have. I mean, I got death threats once, continuously. And I now look back. Yeah, and at the time, you know, I didn't think about this, but now I'm older and I look back and I think, God, what must have that person been going through in order to do that, you know? we're children I wonder if there's a way as a parent to to teach your child how you know that it's okay to make mistakes and um that being criticized it, you know is is fine and, and it's part of life and I believe that so many of our biggest fears later on find their roots in childhood and I wanted to ask you Emma what what were some of your early experiences of fear I went through this massive thing when I was younger which sounds so silly now I say it in the light of day but I thought for a while, if I went to sleep, people I love, my family namely, would die. And I realise now, so I went through a bout of insomnia when I was about six or seven. And my grandmother, my mother's mother, who, who I adored, uh, died when I was five and a half. And then a bit later, my cousin, who I adored, who was very young, 23, died of cancer. And I sort of put those things together and thought, right, if I take my eye off the ball, you know, like I was in charge, something will go wrong. And and I think I just, because I lost two people quite quickly, I had this fear of death. And actually, I wrote about death a few years ago because there was this movement called the Death Cafe movement. I don't know if you, you've heard about it, but it was where people could go and talk about grief. And we don't really have much interaction with death until we're quite a lot older nowadays which is which is a great thing and I'm obviously talking about in the western world um, and, and I'm saying this of course in the light of a pandemic 
and that may have changed for a lot of people. But we don't prepare for it quite in the same way, whereas because our life expectancies are so long now. And I just think I actually have never had a period like that since, you know, I'm sure it's coming and I'm still really nervous about how it will feel to lose parents and my husband's parents and other people close to me. But I, I think it hit me really, really hard, really young. And I didn't understand how something could be so permanent. Uh, so that that was a huge fear. And I took it really personally. And that sort of if a job's worth doing it, you do it yourself attitude is a big part of who I am. And I'm not saying it necessarily stems from that, because obviously I couldn't control it. I just thought I could. So that was a huge fear. And Emma, another childhood fear that you, you told me was was not being invited to the discos and parties <laughs> and not snogging a boy and being in the cool gang, which I definitely yeah, had oh. as well. But I, but I look at you and I think, Emma, you're the coolest woman on air. <laughs> no, I, I, do you know what? I, I think it all came good in the end, but there was this huge... I don't think I ever, by the way, entered some kind of official cool gang. Um, but the what I mean, what I mean by that is, I remember being away and on holiday in the summer holidays, and and the sort of saying quite solemnly to my family, you know, I really don't think I'm going to get invited to to any any discos. And there was all the bar mitzvahs, and there was all these things coming up. And I was sort of aware that a social calendar, you know, would be forming like you are when you're sort of twelve or thirty before you go clubbing, really that there were these parties and evenings and I I just got my contact lenses so I sort of felt like I could be admitted into society now you know like maybe a boy could look at me because I didn't have these huge NHS style bottle tops because I'm so blind all these people who say <laughs> to me sometimes oh I love your glasses do you wear them just to look you know serious I'm like no 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 I cannot see without them um I really need them but you know it was just a huge fear and when I say it all came good I think everybody got invited, you know, like the whole class did, as in it wasn't it wasn't how I thought it was going to be. But there was that huge anxiety. And I have to say I was really secure. I know luckily, you know, some friends did have the whole um, really focusing on their body and all of that. And I, I didn't have that per se. I'm not saying since getting older, I don't have you know, it's not like I whack on a bikini and want to walk out on a beach like tomorrow. But um I didn't have the body bit, but I definitely had the bit of, will I have a, will I have a snog? You know, will I get with someone? Will this happen? All of that was so real and I was so worried about it. And it, you know, it took its course. But I think, again, it, it showed this desire to be on the front foot. You know, if it wasn't going to happen, I wanted to know how to deal with it. And do you think there's some kind of connection between that feeling or that fear of not being seen or heard or, or even invited to something to this decision in wanting to become a journalist do you know what I wanted to do what you did what you do rather I wanted did to be you, Emma? I wanted to be an actor and I remember really I, I was in all the plays I then was the president of my uh, university theatre the first woman I believe to do that maybe second I'll probably get in trouble with Nottingham new theatre for that um but I was certainly I was bitten by it so badly and actually I started directing at university which I loved then a very dear friend of mine Jeff Breton still in the industry he he went off to drama centre to to do it and I was like oh I so want to do that and then somebody said to me how are you going to cope with being unemployed most of the time and having to do other things I said what do you mean of course it, it can't be that bad you know and I remember I was interviewing an actor only the other day on Woman's Hour and they said Dame Harriet Walton she said you know most of us are unemployed most of the time you know 
and then and then it was a reality what that person had said to me and I'm a real pragmatist I didn't know this didn't even know that word at the time and I remember thinking I'm not sure I can hack that so I better go and get an insurance degree so I did a history of politics degree and um, when I say did it I mainly spent my time at the theatre um, just about did some politics on the side uh, which I greatly enjoyed the politics bit the history bit less so and then I discovered I thought the next best thing could be talking to people. But actually, I went into print journalism. That's how it was my route in. And it was only doing radio on the side. I used to cheat on my job at a newspaper. I used to do a show on LBC. That's how I got started. That I realised this was like the real privilege in life. And that word is banded around. Is if you find something that's really, it's not easy, but really natural for you to do that does come naturally for you and most people do not do jobs that they would describe like that but if you can and if you are able to and you can earn a living from it that's like breathing and that's like winning the lottery talking about writing and because i'd really like to talk about your book um which is beautifully written and i loved it by the way it was so informative and so many things I just I just didn't know and now I'm so aware of but the interesting thing for me is that you're you are known as fearless you you don't ever shy away from difficult questions or uncomfortable moments but you've written this book that is essentially about pain where you speak a lot about fear in it the fear and shame women feel around their periods and fertility and IVF and I think a lot of people women might not speak about this because they don't want to seem weak, um, especially in the workplace. And I think there's this warped myth, and you and you do say this in your book, that women just have to put up with pain. But you have come along and and put a big red cross through that. Excuse the pun. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd love you to talk a bit more about this and your experience, and specifically endometriosis. I walked around thinking period pain was completely normal but period pain where I would nearly black out and sometimes did black out or period pain where I couldn't put foot one foot in front of the other or some months you know just leaning to one side or however you could find a bit of comfort and I had friends who you know good women they didn't mean any harm by it but let's you know they were women there wasn't blokes saying this to me just said come on pull yourself together it's a period and I was thinking okay yeah you're right you know I'm, I'm being really weak here. and I'm a woman who doesn't take a sick day I mean it ha- I literally have to be I don't know what I have to be to take one I've, I can count how many I've taken over my life really and so I, I was laboring under a, a few misapprehensions around pain equal weak, weakness talking about pain being soft I don't know if it's because I'm a northerner from Manchester I don't don't know I don't know what I was doing but I was thinking this is this is just how it is this is a woman's lot and also I didn't want to come across as 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 you say weak so I didn't talk about things and then it got really bad and my tummy got really bad you know going to the toilet a lot all sorts of things started to get really bad and it was when we were trying for a baby and I said to my husband at the beginning of trying for a baby, this isn't going to work. And he said, oh, great. Thanks for thanks for the vote of confidence. I was like, no, no, no. Something's wrong with me. It's been wrong with me for years. I don't know what it is. Everybody says I'm fine, but I don't think I am. And what I would just pause here at this point and say, regardless of whether you just got really painful periods and that's not just, but you know what I mean, or you actually, as I then discovered, have an illness called endometriosis, you should trust your gut. You know, you know if something's wrong with you. And despite, as you say, people describing me as fearless and, and being 
a strong advocate for people holding people to account and whatever that means in your life. In my case, obviously, it's meant people in power like politicians. I should have advocated stronger with the doctors and, and I was fobbed off for years. And that's a mixture of reasons. You know, there's a lack of information. And yet one in 10 women have endometriosis at least. It's it's not uncommon. In fact, it's extremely common. It's the same number of people who have type two diabetes. Yet there's a fraction of the money going into to try and help find what causes it, and also there's no cure for it. And one of its hallmarks is bone grinding pain uh, around your menstrual cycle or just all the time for some women. And the other is infertility. And so I was sleepwalking into infertility because it's a, a disease that gets worse. It accumulates and. I didn't know anything about myself and I was 30 and, you know, I ended up begging after a friend said to me, you don't look right, who happened to be an obstetrician. Uh, she said, I think it could be endometriosis. You have to have an operation to be formally diagnosed. I always stress this. Luckily for me, it wasn't actually in my fallopian tubes or my ovaries, but it was all over my bowel, which would explain the tummy issues. And I just thought if I didn't know this, if I couldn't find this out, if I'd accepted pain, and loads of women do. There's a whole study I cite in the book from NHS England of not just women with period pains, with, with urinary issues, re- repeat, you know, problems with, with weeing, all sorts of issues. We think that women go together, pain and women go together like bread and butter. And we just shouldn't and, and don't need to. But the shame stops us from talking. So, you know, I'd actually always been really interested in how to get rid of stigma around those sorts of issues and then I found myself actually having a disease. So I thought I have to put pen to paper and look at this properly. And there were loads of things I didn't expect to write or, or research in that book, you know, whether it was period sex, which, by the way, is a total anathema to me, but I now know an awful lot about. And it's not to other people and good on them uh, through to how it would feel when your period ends, that some people mourn the loss of a period. I personally and you will be invited, Questida, will be having a party. Uh, there will be really great drinks, mainly around a Bloody Mary theme and some tampon stirrers. And I genuinely <laughs> will be very happy when my period pisses off for good. But there's lots I didn't know about what we associate with it and how it's impacted women and how it's impacted how women see themselves and how men see us. So it's a huge area. Yeah, I mean, I only recently shamefully knew what, what endometriosis was. I, I had a uh, another woman on the podcast called Chelsea Leyland who, who also has has it um and for me it's interesting because because I am someone who suffers from bad period pains and nowhere near to the extent extent that how you suffer but sometimes I have to stop working sometimes I cramp over and sometimes when it's really bad I have to go to bed and it makes me think well do I have it you know where's the line how and I know you say well you only know if you have it if you have a, have an operation but I mean does, does that mean lots of people are just walking around with it and, and they have no idea Well, I also have another condition called adenomyosis. So endometriosis is where the womb lining or lining that appears like the womb doesn't leave during a period. It builds up and causes lesions and you can have it lasered out of you like I have. And there's a whole conversation that people have had out there that people can Google about what what you can do next. And there's hormonal treatments and all sorts of things like that. Adenomyosis, uh, a gynae joked to me quite unwisely he described it as the elephant in the womb they know even less about it and you can look that up that's where the muscle lining grows into to the wall of the womb I probably also described that badly but there you go my brain is addled with pain most of the time so that's my excuse but um you know doctors don't even bother explaining it to me sometimes very well but why I'm saying all of that is you're right 
people could be walking around with all sorts of things. And we don't really in this country. Yes, we've got pathways of care in the NHS that do make sense. But we don't have gynecologists in this country that we have relationships with. Whereas in France, your gynecologist like probably comes to your birthday party. And the NHS is a wonderful system, but it is creaking. We've seen that again in light of the pandemic, but it's been the most incredible system in, in many, many ways. But I do think women's health is not prioritised in the way that it should be, nor explained to us in the way that it should be, nor do we feel in command of the facts half the time. And yeah, you can argue it's up to us to go and advocate for ourselves. But if we don't even know what we're advocating for, it's very hard. We don't even have the language. So I'm not here to put fear out there. There are some very specific markers that specialists will say to you and women like you, Cressida, have you got this? Have you got that? And, you know, you need to, I think, I would advise go and have those conversations. But equally, I would say Nike and the top football, women's football teams, I've noticed a trend Uh, I think it's Arsenal ladies, they're all trying to use our cycles now and actually work with them, for instance, for fitness. And that doesn't mean you can't work on the day you've got a heavy bleed, but maybe you won't do your heaviest training session, for instance, that day. You know, it's not woo-woo or weird magic to try and understand the power of hormones, the power of pain, the power of physical incapacity. You know, I, I think we're only waking up to the reality of how women's bodies are now. And endometriosis is something that, that can cause infer- infertility. And you said in your book that you you did fear that happening. I know this was a really painful time for you. Can, can you talk a bit about this time? Because again, this is something that people find very difficult to talk about. Yeah, so you know when I was saying I was labouring under some awful myths before, one of them was also that my failure to get pregnant would mean I'd have to look at something like IVF and that would then be another failure. It were bound up in language about success and failure and I think that does go back to our youth and it goes back to the way we examine children from a very young age. You know, exams, 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 you pass or you fail. And I remember feeling like a failure after two and a half years when I met this grey-haired doctor, this wonderful woman with a ponytail, and she said to me, for God's sake, I'm going to try IVF. You've got endometriosis. You can't seem to get pregnant naturally. And at the very least, you'll stop your periods for a couple of months. I mean, when she said your period can stop for a couple of months, I thought, amen, sister, sign me up. You know, all thoughts of failure went out the window. And that genuinely had been how I'd been feeling. I don't think that now, by the way. I never expected it to work. But the the fear of us having, my husband and I have been with since university, of us having to create entirely new lives potentially without children obviously there are other ways to having children we haven't got to that point of talking about that but I would have done I would be living a completely different life if it hadn't actually gone on to work with my son children were always meant to be in my mind part of my future but they might not have been and that was a huge huge fear it used to make me feel sick um you know my periods make me feel sick and I would get them each month and the grief, you know, your period each month is like an email you don't want to get in your pants. And it's huge failure. And it's your body not playing ball with you. And, you know, you've got friends saying to you, oh, we just had sex once and I'm pregnant. And, you know, you want to stab them in the eye. Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, not not mm. to be too honest about these things. But I, um, I was really scared of it. I didn't know how my life would look. And I have to be honest, I never forget that and I never I meet women who it hasn't worked for I did a special program for five live 
with lots and lots of women in the room. And between them, they've spent millions on IVF, like total. I think it was actually a million in total amongst this group of women. And that is a lot of money and not everybody had a baby. And I do think it's important to say it doesn't always work. And I know I say that with the huge sensitivity that it has worked for me. If you could tell that woman who was going through what you went through at that time, what would you tell her? Keep buggering on. Keep your head down. Don't overthink it if you can. Distract yourself with as much work and pleasure as you can. And that is what I did. I wouldn't say to her, it's all going to be fine because you just simply can't believe it. Because also it might not be fine. It's the worst thing in the world to say to somebody, it'll work out because it might not. And obviously it'll work out you know, in the sense of you'll get through that time and you won't keep trying forever, but it might not have worked out. And, you know, the other thing, if your friends are also going through a lot of this at the moment, is another massive taboo, and I don't speak to this, but a lot of other people do, and and, and I'm so happy they do, is actually getting pregnant through to having a baby is a whole other journey. You know, I had scares along the way. I had big bleeds. I remember I had to spend the night in hospital before a big program that we were doing about the budget and um, the hospital across the road from the studio in Westminster, you know, I slept there and then I snuck out to go do the budget and came back and got in my hospital bed. And the woman was like, where have you been? I said, just, just to do a quick job, you know, and I just couldn't bear to be alone with my own thoughts sometimes of what would happen if I'd lost this baby that we'd then made through IVF and loads of people talk about miscarriage and that's a very important discussion, but you know, I've asked some of my friends recently about, you know, there's some of them going for their second and it's just as hard as going for your first. Let's put it like that. I don't want to betray people's confidences. But the whole thing, as you say, we're taught not to get pregnant. But then the way that even we portray it in films is so stupid that you just have a baby and you go home with it and then you make the film about that. You, you know, Vanessa Kirby, I'm sure you've seen it, Pieces of a Woman. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. Absolutely yeah, I mean, amazing. that's an extraordinary story and that's incredibly, thankfully, not that common. Um, I don't think I'm going to ruin it for anyone to say it. You know, it's a, it's about, a, it's about a, a stillbirth, essentially. I mean, the baby is alive when it's born and then, and then isn't. It's quite widely advertised, so it's not a spoiler. But it's a 30-minute birth scene or whatever in the, the beginning, and I've never seen anything like it and how she deals with it afterwards. And I interviewed her for Women's Hour, and, you know, we talked about the fact that representation of how we have babies and how we get pregnant and then how we have the baby has been so woeful and she's had a lot of people going oh it's so miserable you know you probably won't get the awards you probably won't get the oscar because it's so miserable and I thought quite a lot of this is quite miserable you know I would say my 20s were really good fun by and large like obviously things happen and I'm not saying everything was amazing I think my 30s through a mixture of being diagnosed with endometriosis pumped up on hormones for months on end with IVF, being pregnant, having a baby, having quite a difficult recovery from a C-section. I mean, my 40s are going to be off the chain. That's when I'm going to go <laughs> mad again. 20s and 40s onwards, that's where it's at. But the 30s have been quite atrocious, if I'm honest, at times. Yeah. But but for so the time you went through IVF, you talk about this in your book, that you were sort of going around injecting yourself whilst talking to you know, jumped up politicians and you have them in your, these needles in your pocket or your bag. And that must have been such a strange time as well. It was. It was a very strange time. Um, and, you know, 
shooting up in Downing Street before you do Theresa May, as it were, um, was interesting. And I remember people, I was on the election campaign and I I just actually, I'd done a shift at Women's Hour with an interview that went viral with Jeremy Corbyn. And then I got on the train after that um, and it was a particular interview about some of his, his costings for a policy he'd just announced. And we were just a few days off the election. I should be clear, the Theresa May interview was after the election, but she obviously had a very difficult result. But I remember getting on the train after injecting myself and that was going mad, you know, everything was going viral. And I got to Skegness, to the bingo hall there, and I was trying to track down the leader, the then leader of the UKIP party. And my life was just this absolute madness. And there was a little fridge waiting for me and I had to get the, the needles into the fridge. And I didn't tell my team. I just told them it was all to do with endometriosis and you say to a, largely a group of men, I've got to do vaginal injections, which is basically what they thought they were. They weren't, they were in my thigh. They just didn't want to know any more details. So I got away with that one. But it it was a very weird time. But I, I do think another fear is <laughs> I don't like not being busy. I'm really bad with not being busy. And being busy and working and playing hard are my answers to those things. And I make a lot of dark jokes and I found working and getting across policy and also doing, you know, the lighter hearted interviews saved me from my own mind and my body. You know, your hormones are just one minute you're going through puberty, the next minute you're going through menopause, then they don't want to overstimulate you. I mean, it's 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 an extraordinary journey and and a lot of women have to work through it. Most women have to work two things I never think get talked about enough there you go to add to the list one is the fact that most women have to work through IVF it's horrendous you're on an absolute roller coaster when I was on it I had to make sure I didn't get too emotionally involved in anything because you can't calibrate your reactions at all your normal reaction to something is not normal so there's that and then the other thing is women work pregnant so you know these people who say oh I don't know if I want to employ a woman of childbearing age or I understand that, you know, various issues, especially with smaller businesses, whole discussions around that. But when people talk about whether women are committed or, or whatever can be said, women work while being pregnant. It's the most extraordinary thing, especially when you think about the last three or four months. You're apparently doing the equivalent of a marathon every day in your body. If you don't think that woman is amazing for coming to do her job, and I can guarantee you most of the time doing it to the very best of her ability, possibly even better than she was doing it before because she's so worried about still having a job to come back to. You tell me that we're not phenomenal. Emma, you've, you know, you are courageous in the workplace. You are, I see you as a very courageous person, but I'm curious to know, outside of that, um, what's been your most courageous moment in your life and outside IVF and everything you went through when I was 21 and I was in South Africa with traveling with a group of people I was walking down a street with my friend Nia she won't mind me naming her she's brilliant and she's really this is the irony she's really tough she's like a rock chick nose pierced tattoo chain smoker literally you couldn't be any couldn't be with anyone better for what was about to happen and yet she's the one and this was really scary we, we saw this bloke come up behind us and we thought this isn't good this just isn't good and the irony was I'd just been on the phone to home saying yeah we're all really safe we feel really great in this place and we were walking back to the the hostel where we were staying and this guy came up behind us 
I just knew in slow motion he was about to grab one of us and he grabbed Mia and he was really big. And You know, me saying she's tough or whatever isn't saying she then wasn't tough. She was brilliant. But it was just ironic because I almost wish he'd grabbed me and then she could have been like in charge of the response. So he grabbed her, wrestled her to the ground and actually for a really scary moment, but then it became very quickly, this wasn't what was about to happen because he was going towards her trousers. That was actually where her money was you know on one of those purse belt things that you wear below your your top often when you're I mean it's like a glorified bum bag but you know what I mean he was going for that he'd seen she was wearing one but at first I was really scared that he was going to sexually assault her and then the second thing was he was on top of her and he's sort of slightly frothing at the mouth he was on drugs right so I didn't know if he was armed I didn't know anything about him we're on the side of a road people driving past dusk so we were in the light And I had a choice whether to run to the hostel to get help or stay and try and get this bloke off my friend. And it's, you know, that that fight or or flight thing. Obviously, it's not flight like I would have left her. It would be to get help. And I, Cressida, I do not to this day, I've never told anyone this story publicly. I do not to this day know what came over me, but I just started (laughs) kicking his head saying get off my friend and it was one of the rare days because you know when you're traveling and you're on you're away you wear flip-flops like all the time when it's hot but I actually had I remember I had trainers on because I was kicking and kicking him and what was odd about this guy and in a way this poor bloke you know poor in the sense that he was obviously on drugs and he was desperate was that I was kicking him he was not responding he was not replying he was just so focused on getting the money out of her purse and she laid back and didn't fight at all because you know that was the right thing to do I think and it was what she did so whatever and then he finally got off her I scooped her up I don't know how long that whole episode lasted not very long at all he'd taken the 50 dollars or whatever it was and I literally carried her like pure adrenaline back to the the hostel and we rang the police and she said I was more frightening than him. And I have no real memory of this, but all I know is I was just screaming, get off her, get off her, and not stopping. And no one was helping us. I didn't have time to ask for help. But yeah, I basically like kicked this guy's head in. Wow. <laughs> Everyone needs a friend like you, Emma. I don't know. No, but I, I, A, I wasn't successful. <laughs> As in, I don't think he got off at any, well, he may have got off her a bit quicker. But it was a very scary and interesting experience on several levels because you just don't know what you're going to do. And I never walked with music in my ears ever since that. But I did then quite soon afterwards visit a friend abroad who was abroad for university. And she came up behind me on the train station in Berlin to say hello to me. And I just turned around and smacked her in the face. As in she tickled me. <laughs> but I was still on edge so badly that I turned around. So, you know, I'm laughing about it now almost nervously because Mia just said she looked at my face to get through it and I was just a raging mess. Now, Emma, this is the time for the quick fire round. What is the experience that changed you forever? Meeting my now husband, as he was to become at university, completely altered the course of my life. I believe that. He went to university thinking he probably would meet the woman he would end up with, interestingly. And I did not. (laughs) I was there for everything else. Uh, You know, if I met some people, great. Uh, Made some friends. That was what I was there for, really. And obviously a few few lovers along the way would be lovely. But I did meet him. And what was so interesting about it was I just knew. And, you know, my mum had said that to me for years. Oh, you'll know when you know. I'm like, yeah, right. That does not happen. And I used to get really annoyed about it. And I, as ever, you may have detected 
one of my weaknesses is patience. I'm very impatient for things to happen. I'd like to make something happen yesterday. Uh, It is a big fault of mine. But equally, it can be a strength. And I also feel another strength, if I'm allowed to blow my own trumpet for one minute, is that I'm quite decisive. Decisiveness is really helpful a lot of the time in life, I've found. And I know my own mind and I'm not always right, but I often am for myself. It doesn't mean I have the right views on things, but I saw him and I just thought, and we started talking, I thought, God, I've met you, but I'm only 20. How could I have met you now? And then will it be okay? Will we, will we last? Will this just be something we shouldn't do yet? And, and, you know, we, we forged forward and I'm really lucky that we've grown together. We both, we both are lucky that it's, it's continued and, you know, 16 years on or whatever it is now we are still together but he is great he makes me laugh even more than he used to which I think is is a sign of you know you you also are extremely strong friends but he's just such a a whole fundamental part of me and he's my family he's my everything and I, I just don't think I would have done most of the things that I would have done without him in my personal life, whether that's travel. I I would have done things, but it just would have been very different. And I've lived my life alongside somebody from the age of 20 who I adore. And, you know, I know that we talked about the cool group earlier, if that stays in. Um, (laughs) But he, he is my cool group. Like, I don't need anybody else. I love my friends and we have very good friends together. But he is the person I want to spend my time with over everybody and I I guard my my life my schedule really tightly actually on that you know with my type of work you can work a lot you know I know what we were saying before but you can take things all the time because you want to and you think you have to but I am I don't work Friday nights ever even though I could work lots more on on news night and other things and I rarely work weekends anymore I used to work weekends a lot because I just want to spend my time with him yeah oh Emma that's so lovely and so much of that I can relate to you know when I when I met Harry at university I was the same we were actually we met before university we went when we were 18 and I remember feeling the same I thought god how have I met you now you know this is not the time um unfortunately I'm not as decisive as you so I always I I wish I could learn to be more decisive um if you have any tips please um let me know how you can be more decisive Cressida, you just you just take a choice and then you go with it. Sometimes you it just... might not be the best, but you just you just have to make the decision. <laughs> and the holiday thing, we 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 love traveling, and so when we can, we always just try and we pick a place and we travel around that place. Um, and a lot of our friends say, "God, why do you always go on holiday? Just you guys. Why don't you go with friends? Don't like, don't you just run out of things to talk about?" And I always say, "No, I don't want to go on holiday with anybody else." No, we I mean, always have so much to talk about and obviously I talk for a living and, and I must have too much to say because you know I, I can always find a way of when the guest for instance disappears I can just talk to thin air maybe that's because I'm an only child and I, I had to talk to myself growing up but we'll get in bed at the end of the day and we would have spent obviously lockdown loads of time together too much time everybody would say I actually haven't felt that but you know what I mean and I'll lie down and I'll be like can we talk and he'll just look at me and go, what now? Like, we've been talking all night. What do you want to say now? I'm like, oh, just five more minutes. And he's like, Emma, please shut up. And then turns the light on. I'm like, oh, okay. 
yes I have exactly the same and sometimes if I have a worry I really need to speak about that worry but instead of just saying my worry once I have to say my worry about you know (laughs) 10 times he's like yeah but we've just discussed this and I'm like yeah but can we just discuss it a bit more until we just kill it and he goes all right but we've literally just had this conversation and it's just gone on a loop (laughs) yeah I think the, the need to talk it out is very prevalent important yeah right now what is the book in your life that's given you courage, belief and hope? What Mothers Do, Especially When It Looks Like Nothing by Naomi Stadlin. Every book I read once I became a mum, which I had been wanting to do for, for a long time, everyone was about the kid, was about the baby. This one was about me and about how to adjust your life when you've been used to being very, very selfish and it's all being about you. And I felt there are other books and I have discovered them since but that was the first one that made me feel understood with what I was going through with the adjustment of my identity so I would recommend that to people who are early on and are thinking about it and struggling and who has inspired you the most there's lots of people but the the person who came to mind was my godmother who who is still here still with us much much older now in her in her 90s but um she is an incredible woman who ran a hairdressing salon, was a bit of an entrepreneur before people were. She's very glamorous, always earned her own money, always independent, had actually a very loving relationship with my godfather, with, with her late husband, who really were a template for me in many ways with that friendship that I was just talking about. They always did their own thing in the day and then their favourite thing was to have a date with each other at night. Uh, so she is this formidable, glamorous, strong intelligent woman that has been a constant through throughout my life but because we aren't blood relations there we've always had chats that you just wouldn't necessarily have with people you are related to so I've appreciated that and it's become a friendship as well as her being my godmother. Lovely and what is something that has improved your life? I think over the last year one of the greatest things that I've been allowed to do is go into work and go to studio. Now, I'm going to say one thing very quickly, which is, and it's very important, also still having a job. I mentioned before, I'm not good if I'm not busy. Uh, I feel that's linked to having a purpose. Hence why I did something which I really wouldn't recommend, Cressida, if you do go down the road of of being pregnant, having a baby. Uh, I wouldn't write a book on maternity leave. I wouldn't sign that contract as you were being wheeled in for your C-section, which is exactly what I did with this book. Uh, I genuinely thought I would need something to do on maternity leave. Maternity leave is, as it turns out, quite badly described. There's no leave involved. It's quite full on. Um, so I'm I'm all about keeping myself busy and, and being stimulated. And I found going into work a saving grace this year because hats off to everybody and you know this is I see it in my own home who are working unable to work from home but I did it for six weeks when we had to do the radio show from home and yeah I I just found I find the routine of getting up and going out of the house if you can do it incredible for me personally. Emma do you have any strange fears or phobias? Okay so I know everybody's really scared of mice but I am also scared of mice not everybody but lots of people and I've had moments living in cities who hasn't you know I had one fossilized under my bed in my book grove above the chicken shop in my first flat that I lived with my best friend <laughs> like you? hideous hideous I could smell this thing I couldn't find it and then we moved out I saw two little eyes beating out of me and it was a skeleton so let's not go over how much that traumatized me the one that's really really weird I haven't seen it since school please never play a prank on me anyone who's listening are iron filings 
you know those like that black pepper looking thing and then you run a you run a magnet over it and they stick up on end and it's like little spiky hairs just freaks me out and goes through me and when my husband shaves it looks a bit like that in the sink like the black against the white and it's just like nails on a on a chalkboard for me so that's the really weird one and the mice thing is 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 there as well Emma what would you do if you this is my favorite question what would you do if you were not afraid I would go to stand-up comedy genuinely it it would be so bad if I actually did it but I just I can't stop watching it that's what I've been watching during lockdown I need to laugh I miss going to watch theatre and live comedy live comedy you know in the dingier the place the better I want to watch people just push all the boundaries and say things my whole life at the moment especially with the job I do at the BBC is helping other people say things or watching what I say but making sure I create spaces for them you know it's 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 architecture it's conversational architecture as well as conversation just to rip it all off and go for it looks so liberating and to make people laugh it must be amazing and yet having interviewed comedians and read lots of comedians books I know that it's also quite a torturing thing to do because they use a lot of themselves in it but I oh it would be so incredible wouldn't it just to stand up and make people laugh Emma thank you so much I'd love to end on this uh, one of my favorite quotes from your book which has nothing to do with what we were just talking about but what we were <laughs> talking about at the beginning is <laughs> don't be revolted lead the revolt preferably with a grin on your face and a tampon tucked proudly behind your ear <laughs> you need fantastic. to do that you need to... <laughs> you need to do that in your next play even if it's like a really hot theatre and about the life of George Orwell Thanks to Emma Barnett for joining me on the podcast. Next week, I'll be speaking to award-winning journalist and adventurer, Jamal Yogis. Keep up to date by liking, reviewing and subscribing to Fear Itself on your favourite podcast app. I always love to hear from my listeners. Let me know what you think about the show, if you've been inspired by any of the conversations or simply just get in touch to tell me a bit about you. You can find me on Instagram. You've been listening to Fear Itself, presented by me, Cresta Bonus. This podcast was produced by One Fine Play. Executive producer is James Bishop. Editorial producer and editor is Oli Giyu. Additional creative support from Selena Christophidis, Louise Berry, Jessica Williams, Emily Weller and Connor Foley. With music by Malt Martin. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.